Welcome to the Candid Frame. This is Martin Taylor standing in for Iberian X while he is on a well-deserved vacation. I'm usually the editor for the show, but while Iberianx is away, I said I'd find someone interesting to interview to tide our listeners over until he gets back. Our guest today is Rebecca Jackrell, who is a wildlife and nature photographer based in San Francisco. Not only is she a woman working in a very male-dominated field, but she has also been using her photography to promote environmental concerns and to support various environmental organizations. In a cynical world, it is always refreshing to speak with someone trying to make a difference through their photography. Welcome, Rebecca, to The Candid Frame. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. I guess we start at the beginning. If you could maybe talk a little bit about how you got started in photography. It's been kind of a long road. Uh, I started off, my brother had a dark room when I was a kid. I'm five years younger, so I would follow him everywhere yeah. and sit in there and watch him develop and, and kind of be his assistant out in the field, holding everything from pigeons in place for him to uh, photograph and dandelions and all kinds of crazy stuff. But the smell of the chemical and watching things develop on the paper was just fascinating to me. But I kind of lost that along the way. So what brought you back? Alaska. Alaska. Yes. My husband bought me a DSLR and Uh I was so excited to play with it. And we went up and had this fabulous vacation. I took what I thought were the most amazing photos ever. And I won't show them to anybody now. (laughs) (laughs) But I really caught the bug. And um, figuring out that I could marry my love of wildlife and and nature with an artistic outlet was really the the solidifying moment for me when I said, you know, I can really do this. I can chuck the 12 to 12 job, the 80-hour-a-week software stuff, and, and just really follow a passion rather than working <laughs> right. right why does it that so how long from like uh when you first got a dslr to going pro was it it was probably a good three and a half four years before i felt confident enough to put my work out there yeah and like i had enough of a body of work to show people right um, so I think that's the hardest part for photographers is actually putting themselves out there because this is this is your baby right. um, and making that separation of this is a job and work yeah. and letting people see it and comment on it and not getting caught up in the, oh, my God, somebody didn't like it. Well, right. Not everybody's going to yeah. like it. <laughs> yeah. It's a very machismo field you've gone into. I would say it's like the most machismo field after like war photography. It seems like... Uh, Absolutely. It's a lot of guys with equipment fetishes and big lenses, expensive gear. How do you compete in that arena? I don't know that there is actually a competition per se. You can get caught up in that. But when you decide to not get caught up in that and just do what you're doing, there are some female photographers out there, like Susie Esterhaus um, and Jenny Ross, that are paving their own way. And I think they're not focusing on what the guys are doing. Right. Uh, they're just going out and following their passion. And if you can get to that point, uh, it's great. But there is a definite lack of, of females out in the field doing the hardcore stuff, you right. know, going out and playing with polar bears and camping on remote islands for a week. <laughs> getting yeah. fleas from penguins. 
a lot of the female nature photographers tend to go for the the pretty scenes, the florals, and they make their name more with that than the hardcore stuff. Right. So it's it's a rare person that does go out. You're right. Traditionally, it is the the men that have that machismo. I'm going to walk up and punch a polar bear in the nose and take its picture. <laughs> it's one of those fields where. It's not something you can just do casually very easily. I mean, there is a big investment in equipment and there's a huge investment in time and planning. You can take pictures of wildlife in your own city or your own mm -hmm. backyard. But at some point, when you, especially if you say, I'm going to be a professional at this, you've got to like invest a lot of money and a lot of time getting somewhere and having the gear when you get there to be prepared to take pictures mm -hmm. And it's, it seems like, you know, it's not mainstream gear that you ha you normally use. You you guys have the big lenses. and. But once you have that investment in the glass, then yeah. you're just going. Um, the big thing is, you know, focusing in on target species that you want to get. Right. Because you're not going to get the photos the first time out. Right. You'll get some nice stuff, but you're not going to make that real connection yeah. unless you go again and again. Um, so I've been to the Arctic... 20, 25 times to get specific images and to work with polar bears and, and uh, just added walrus to the repertoire and very excited to go back and work with them more uh, because now that I know how they move, how they act, uh, I, I think I can get even better images. Yeah, that's interesting that you, you've invested all this time and this money getting somewhere. It must be hard to take chances with the pictures when you get there. I mean, you've spent a week getting to some place. You've spent so much time getting to this one location where the animals are maybe acclimatized to you and things like that. I mean, how do you push past, like, just taking the safe shot? That That's a really good question. Um, you always have a specific shot in mind that you want to get, and sometimes it's just impossible to get. So being open to other alternatives, you're always going to get something. Yeah. Um, I've only been skunked really on one trip, and the last day I managed to pull a few things to pull back. I have managed to sell those, so it wasn't a total loss, but... Right. Getting to the point where you can can push past that, this is the shot I need, this is the shot I need, to see what else is out there is pretty hard mentally. But once you do it, it it's very rewarding. It must be hard if you've gone all this way to one particular place for a specific shot of a specific animal and it's not cooperating or the weather's... Yeah. The one thing certain in wildlife photography is animals will never do what you want them to do, ever. Yeah. You guys are really out on your own sometimes. There's no camera technician to help you out when things go wrong. I know you've had experiences where uh, you planned as much as you can. You got to a place, one screw on the camera has come undone. That was in Ethiopia, and the stop screw on the lens backed out, and I didn't realize it. So when I put the lens on the camera, it tore the aperture lever out. And basically, the camera was non-functional. Uh, luckily, I had a friend with me who is 
extremely technological minded and he was able to jerry rig the camera so we could continue shooting but we were in the wilds of ethiopia there's no nps there there's no way to get a new camera we, we were camping so if i hadn't had my friend there there's no way we would have completed the assignment wow that must have been a little stressful just a little I mean, you have two backup, you have a backup camera and then you have a smaller one just in case. And I was using the 300S just because it was the only camera I had left. Right. Um, that must be stressful. I mean, we go out shooting. If anything technologically goes wrong or artistically we're uninspired that day, usually photographers can go back the next day or the mm -hmm. next week or the next month and, mm -hmm. and get something that they wanted you there's a different kind of stress involved if there's all this time and money involved in getting somewhere and something's not working either technologically or artistically is is there any time where you've been out there and you feel uninspired or? oh absolutely and the best way i've found to deal with that is to take a completely different tack i've gone to places where you know, i'm working with an animal and like this just isn't working. I don't like the images I'm getting. So I'll throw a different lens on and work with just that lens. Even if it's not the image that I thought I wanted, I'll work an entire day with just one lens, trying to be as creative as possible. And that normally reboots my system. Yeah. So I can then go back and say, okay. It's interesting because you think of the wildlife photographers being a different breed, but these are the same tactics as other people use. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we all have that, that in common. Seems like there's a lot of work goes into planning to be at the right place at the right time and getting there and absolutely raising funds in your case sometimes. What sort of percentage do you think you're spending like planning and doing things other than pressing the shutter? I would say about 80% of the time is spent in the office doing research or um, trying to sell the images later, um, only about 20% of the time in the field, which is kind of sad because if, if your passion is really shooting, um, you lose a lot of that when you try to do it as a business. So you're not able to go out every single weekend and, and play around. You've got to do everything that you can to, to make money, to get the images out there, to get them seen, but also to make sure you're in the right place at the right time. I do, for the conservation work, I work with researchers a lot, and that cuts down on the time that I need to spend uh, figuring out where the animals are going to be, what's going to be the best time of year, et cetera, et cetera. I can use their knowledge to get myself in the right place at the right time. And since you brought it up, some of your recent projects have been less about your own photographic career and been more to do with using your pictures for conservation. Could you talk a little bit about how you made this progression to these projects? Is this, is this something you always wanted to do or is it something you move um, to as you as you got more into the photography it was definitely a progression into uh, with photography i think everybody gets to a point where they feel what they're doing is stale so they either look for another genre to add to their portfolio or they look for a way to take their images to the next level or they look for a higher 
purpose for their images. So with my love of animals and conservation and wildlife, it was a natural progression to start to use my images beyond just making pretty pictures. Conservation photography is not new. William Henry Jackson was employed by the Union Pacific Railroad in the 1869 to photograph the way out to the West. And he used those images to uh, persuade Congress to create the first national park. But it never really got its its footing until in 2004, Christina Minnemeyer uh, was looking around and said, conservation photography, it's beyond just um, when you did a Google search for it, it came up with how to preserve photographs for a museum. Right. And she said, you know what, there, there's so much more. We need to really get people looking at, at images as a way to tell a story and affect change. And she's done a great job with it with the ILCP. Images have an ability to tell a story without language. So someone in Spain, someone in Germany, somebody in the U.S. can have a common language in photography. They can look at an image of the ivory trade and know exactly what's going on without needing to be told. Um, so if you can capture the story, you can share that with people around the world and affect change. Uh, so basically, you're giving a voice to the voiceless. Was your first project then the Medway project? Um, I started off working with uh, small local groups like the Marine Mammal Center and the San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory. And basically, I was just providing images for them to use um, free of charge. I would do prints for the volunteer appreciation parties, prints for their uh, annual reports and, and things like that. And that kind of gave me a feel for what these organizations need, the kind of support uh, and imagery that they look for. And in doing so, I started working with different researchers and going out into the field with them. And then going down um, on a broader uh, project, working with the Tasmanian Devil research team, and I spent a week and a half shadowing them as they captured animals to test where the disease line was, which was a fabulous opportunity to work with researchers in the field. Again, I provided them with images that they can use for their education. So then once I had done all of those things, I started looking for something bigger and realized that there was a wolf in Africa and a researcher who needed someone to kind of bring better imagery to the forefront. There had been one other photographer a while back who had been out there and spent a good deal of time, uh, Martin Harvey, uh, but that was all in the film days. His images have been used again and again and again, and the organization needed new stuff. So the opportunity to work with them was just too much to pass up. It seems that, sorry, it's a very symbiotic relationship. You get access you might not otherwise have, and they get... They get work that they can use to tell their story to a bigger audience. And there are a lot of, working with researchers, they're, they're a little shy of photographers because so many have gone in and just taken the images and walked away. There's a, a sloth center in Costa Rica. We were visiting on vacation. We went in and they saw my camera and they said, oh, you're a professional. We don't want you here. We don't want you to take photographs. And I was asking them why. And they said, well, they all come in, they take the photos, they promise to send donations or to talk about us, and they don't even reference where they got the photos from. And that really disheartened me that there are other photographers out there who would do that. I feel very much that we, we as photographers need to give back to these organizations that are helping us. It seems like maybe to begin with, you were working with these local 
organizations you how do you seek out projects that you know are worthwhile and that you can make a difference to and a lot of it is word of mouth when people start to learn that you're into conservation and science and and becoming a citizen scientist as it were they start to throw things your way like i found out about the wolves through a friend at the mammal center who hooked me up with the wildlife conservation network for that project i know that you got funding through kickstarter it seems a lot of photographers and filmmakers these days are using kickstarter maybe you could talk a little bit about what you the process you had to go through to to get yourself out to these lo- to this location and i had been following a, another young photographer Uh, named Morgan Heim, and she's doing a project with fishing cats in Thailand. And she had a Kickstarter project, and I watched how she was navigating social media and using Kickstarter to get everything together. And so when it came time for us to start working on the Ethiopian Wolf Project, I met Wilbur Lucas, the photographer who worked with me, uh, through Twitter. From there, we decided that, you know, this is going to be an expensive project. We went through and we did a budget of exactly how much money we would need um, to get us out there to have enough time to spend to create the portfolio of images that we knew that we needed. And it turned out to be about $12,000. And so we said, well, let's give Kickstarter a try. We honestly did not think that we would meet our goal because the goal was so high. Kickstarter projects that tend to be successful tend to be two to five thousand dollar range. Yeah. Uh, so we thought, you know, we'll just put it out there and see how it goes. And we were overwhelmed with the response that we got. Uh, we did the little intro video yeah. through Twitter and Facebook. We created a whole network of people who were interested in the wolves. And it's amazing when you put something out there how it it travels exponentially because you've got all these people funding you and backing you does that add an extra level of stress that you it's not like you've just got one client to disappoint you've got a whole bunch of them out there and you're like a brand they're watching you they want to they want updates and things like that is that a pressure yeah yeah definitely uh the first time i went out to ethiopia i was with a a group of 13 people from five different countries and it was more of an overview of the area where the wolves live and i got a couple of images of wolves that i was okay with but not what i would consider to be good Uh, and so when will and i got there i was terrified that we weren't going to get what we needed, that there was no way we would get close enough. We had all kinds of problems with the vehicles in the beginning, and we had a very rough, rocky start. Uh, So the first week, I was a mess, (laughs) just terrified. Um, And then when we finally settled into the Web Valley and where we would be for the period of time, and when we got, we were there for about five weeks. Um, So after the first week, we moved from the entrance point of the park yeah. uh, where we're originally located um, just to get used to the altitude when we finally moved into the heart of the park and set up our, our permanent camp we went out and the first morning we were there we found the den and we got set up and we waited and we waited and the sun came up and the wolves woke up and they all came out and the puppies came out and that was the moment when i just said 
okay, this is going to be all right. <laughs> there's, there's this huge sigh of relief. You could just feel the weight lifting off our shoulders. Yeah. But then we had to deal with, we had promised to do updates from the field. Yeah. The satellite phone uplink wouldn't work. We just could not get it to work. We went into town, and the internet cafe had computers from, like, 1995. <laughs> None of them worked. We had one moment where we had two minutes of access, and then it cut out. They wouldn't let us upload anything from a flash drive because they were terrified of viruses, <laughs> even though they had outdated Internet Explorer that, you know, anybody logging on to anything would pull something down from the net. So it was just horrific. We spent another two weeks before we finally found the right toggle to go into the cell phone to make the updates. And when we finally got that done and we got a few blog posts queued up, we we started to feel a little better. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it it is an additional pressure then. You're out in the field. As we mentioned, you're not just trying to satisfy one client anymore. You're new employers <laughs> they want they want status updates you know mm-hmm. what? it's almost worse than an employer though because this community have become basically your family so the thought of disappointing your family is even worse than getting fired from a job yeah. <laughs> i mean you get fired from a job yeah you'll get another job but you're not going to regain the trust of this family yeah if you let them down just like any other job, you want them to reinvest in you mm-hmm. next time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and to tell their friends. I mean, if, if we do a good job and we've gotten some really lovely feedback from some of the people who got prints uh, out of the Kickstarter and got little stuffed wolves and, and they seem to really appreciate what we've done and they're going to tell their friends or some, their friends are going to come over to their house, they're going to see the print on the wall, what's the story? Uh, and that way we're, we're virally getting yeah. an even bigger following. Yeah. Um, so it's important not to let them down. What's the organization's name that you are working for over there? So it's it's a little confusing. There's uh, the Wildlife Conservation Network, which supports, I think, around 15 or 16 projects all around the world. And one of their projects is the Ethiopian Wolf Conservation Program, which was started in 1995 by Dr. Claudio Solero. And he is the Ethiopian wolf person. He works for... Oxford University and uh, has been since his doctoral work in the Ethiopian Highlands has just become the world-renowned authority on wild canids. So the chance to work with him and his team was just an incredible experience. Wildlife photography, it seems like like exploration in general. The big stories have been covered to death. So, you know, we see the big Big cats, we see the elephants, we see the rhinos all the time. Mm-hmm. How hard is it to find stories that are worth telling and will have an impact, but are new? That's something that that everybody faces. Uh, with so many boundaries that have been pushed, you know, Paul Nicklin doing the, uh, the seals uh, down in Antarctica and just pushing the boundaries there and, and people doing underwater photography, Paul Souders up in Svalbard working with the walrus. Pretty much everything's been done. And especially when you go to Africa, it's been done. Every single person and their brother has been out there. So finding a new way 
to cover it. Like I told myself I'd never go to Africa because I didn't want to sit in a Land Rover with 25 other Land Rovers around me watching one lion mate. Yeah. It's just there's no passion there for me. Right. Um, there's no connection with the animal. So finding something like the Ethiopian wolf, this gem that people haven't really traveled to the Ethiopian highlands, it's not been done. There isn't a large body of work out there. It's this this raw gem that, that you know you've, you've found something special. And telling that story, um, definitely when we look through your images, you get a great sense of place. It's not the Africa of the Serengeti, the typical safari shots we see at all. It's an Africa that doesn't seem to have had a lot of attention. Is the story you were telling, do you feel like that was the story you thought you were going to be telling when you went out there? Or did things change when you when you actually saw what the environment was like or actually spent a lot of time in it? Yes, definitely things changed. My thinking was that we would be lucky to get certain shots, that we would be just absolutely lucky to get close enough to get a head portrait, a headshot. And after the first couple of days at the Tarura Den, realizing how comfortable the wolves were with our presence, our shot list expanded. It just <laughs> went through the roof. We're like, okay, we can do this, we can do that. We can. Will brought his beetle cam along, and he was able to deploy that and get some a really nice low angle shot of one of the the pups who was very brave and came running up and and barked at the, <laughs> the little beetle cam. Just the, the ability to to think on the fly and expand what we wanted to get um, was was important. We're, we're always looking for opportunities. So it, it's not as if we spend the first day going, okay, this, 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 and this. We, we kind of work through it. Like with the, the wolves, we knew that we wanted to get hunting behaviors. And that was on the t- one of the top things that we wanted on our list. But it wasn't until the last day. We were pulling away from the den of the BBC pack and we figured that was the last we would be shooting as we headed back to our camp. Uh, the female stopped us on the road. She was waiting and wouldn't let us pass. Mm-hmm. We, we stopped the car and pulled over. She gave us a look, said, are you watching? <laughs> and then she went and leapt over a boulder and came up with a grass rat. And it was the shot that we wanted. So it was that very last day, that last moment before we had to pack up and leave that we got the final bit the final piece to the puzzle yeah um so you do you work off your list and and you try to keep in mind what you have and and haven't gotten but sometimes it's just absolute luck and kismet right the shot list that you're coming up with is that just something you're coming up with through your experience working in the field or and the story you want to tell or is the client like is the client got an idea of the power the photography could have, and do they want a certain story told? Yeah, definitely. Um, when we were working with the the researchers in the field, they are they just got permission to do a vaccine trial, so they wanted to show them working in the field with the wolves, getting the the blood samples. Uh, so that was very much on their mind, and we set aside three days to go and and follow them as they captured the wolves. A lot of the captures happened at night when it was absolutely mm-hmm. pitch dark. So we're trying to work with our flashes and um, get the focus right. And, and that was frustrating and hard to do. But those were images that they needed uh, to tell their story. Uh, and we felt it was very important. Uh, we're working on a book. We wanted to include their work. So we needed people 
neither Will nor I really specialize in people, but we knew for the story that we had to get people in there following the conservationist lead on needing those specific images uh, really helped us out as well to tell the entire story. And have you seen how your images are being used yet? Um, We've had an image, uh, had a two-page spread in uh, Natural History magazine. We've got a few magazines that we can't talk about yet that are going to be coming out, hopefully December, January, but we're very excited about those. Born Free and WCN have both used the images. We are going to be selling images at the Wildlife Conservation Network annual summit. Yeah. Hopefully that will, will raise more money. We're putting together, as I said, a book. All the proceeds from the book will go to the Ethiopian Wolf Conservation Program uh, for their vaccine purchases and things like that. Right. So it, it's coming together. Uh, it's slow. It's a process. It's making contacts. Uh, every time you talk to an art director, yeah. and they say, yes, that's great. And then three months later, you're still kind of pulling through stuff and working with them on what they need. And that sounds more like images that you're pushing to, <clears throat> to tell the story. Mm-hmm. I'm interested because you're working for somebody um, and they're take, they're all, the organization themselves, I mean, I presume they have their own collateral, but that might not be a huge part of it. But are they pushing your images as part of their story? Oh, absolutely. They are thrilled to have updated images. They've been using the same uh, images from Martin Harvey for the last 10, 15 years. So to have something fresh to show to their followers really helps to pull in. These are the pups that were born this year. It really makes more of a connection with people. Oh, this is what's going on there right now. So when they send out their mailings, uh, when they send out their their postcards and everything else, it's it's new, it's fresh, it's exciting, and they're really grateful to have the images. And we're really happy to have been able to provide them. Our responsibility doesn't end by just giving them the images to use. We're going further than that. We've got a gallery show coming up in September, and 50% of all the proceeds that we make will go to the wolves. Uh, The gallery that we're showing at actually also has a donation that they will give on their end. So, Where's that going to be? That's uh, in L.A. Um, It's the G2 Gallery. Because this is kind of a hard subject. If you're using proceeds from Kickstarter to get somewhere to, to do something. You're promising images to an organization that you're working for. Is it set in stone what you personally allowed to do with the images and what they have ownership of, what you have ownership of? And how it must be hard in your own mind to like, it's your own career, your own business. How much of your effort is going towards that? How much of um, your effort is going towards the course. Is that, is that something you would think about? Yes, we absolutely did think about that beforehand. We sat down with the organization, with Claudio, and said, what do you need? What do you hope to get out of this? And we set everything down in writing in a memo of understanding. It's non-binding, but it keeps all of us honest yeah. um, about what we expect. And we said for three years... of any proceeds that we make will go directly to the wolves. And we're all very happy with that. The other 50% basically pays for whatever we have to put in to make 
the products that yeah. we're selling. And we're fine with that. We got other images there that aren't related to the project that we can put out in stock, uh, and hopefully they'll start making money for us. So it's it's a good blend. Yeah. But absolutely, thinking about it beforehand, getting it in writing, keeps everybody happy. Yeah. Yes. No surprises. Right. We've talked to a, a lot of photographers, and the nature of business seems to have changed. It was a simpler time back in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, mm-hmm. where you had, usually you worked for a magazine or an organization. They sent you on assignment. You did this thing, and you came back, and they dealt with it and you went on to the next job Um, and it seems more and more that there's less of that kind of work available so people are having to hunt out their own work define their own job it's still photography on its own is very powerful but a lot of people now want video they and other multimedia and it's like well you're out there you've got the camera why can't you just grab video while you're there i know this was one of the first projects where you would doing video on this project. I don't know if you can really call what I did video. Um, Yeah, it's very difficult for one person to do both video and still photography. Uh, You really just have to commit to one or the other. Um, So we got some little snippets and clips that we can use, but nothing that I would consider putting out for stock or anything like that. So I do still see teams out in the field, mostly BBC, Nat Geo teams. We ran into a Nat Geo team. They were leaving the day that we arrived. And it was really quite amusing because we were jealous of them for having the backing of Nat Geo and and the money to go out there and, and do everything. And they were jealous of us because we had a completely free schedule. We could go as long as we wanted. We didn't have to answer to anybody. And we owned the shots when we were done. Right. So uh, it was kind of eye-opening for both of us. But the days of the $20,000 cover shot are over. Um, I've talked to a lot of different photographers that I meet in the field, and some of them are saying, you know, I used to make $400,000 a year, and now I'm lucky to clear sixty, And that's busting my ass and and really working every contact I I have to to get my images out there. We hear this all the time uh, from all fields, like photojournalism, sports photography especially. I know Scott Kelby talks about it a lot, Mm -hmm. like how miserable sports photographers seem to be. At least you're working with a subject that you've got passion for. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Is this a a project you'll revisit, go shoot again? Absolutely. Um, Our our goal is hopefully if we can raise the money for the vaccinations that need to take place uh, against rabies and and canine distemper virus, these wolves can bounce back. When the BBC did their documentary, we noticed that one of the packs they focused on had 22 members. And when we were there, there were only, I think, two members of that pack left. Yeah. So one of the shots we had hoped to get was the morning snuggle and they had images of of 20 wolves piled on top of each other and giving each other kisses and it was adorable and sweet and we didn't get that opportunity because it wasn't there so we're hoping once the vaccinations take hold and they start reproducing more and build their packs up again we can go back and get those images and and show the triumph right Um, What really drew us to the wolves, this particular species, was that they can recover. There's absolutely no reason. They're not persecuted. They have plenty of habitat in the Bali Mountains. If they can control these two diseases, they can make a comeback. So it's not all the doom and gloom. Right. 
wildlife and landscape photographers are quite often looking for just the pretty image and you're trying to tell it it's a complex story you're trying to tell it's not mm -hmm. that hopeless shot of dead elephants with tusks hacked off and it's not mm -hmm. the just the happy story of some species doing well it is a very complex story at trying to tell is is that something that you have to think about when you're in the field or is that something you you um you try to develop and tell that story when you're back and you're editing your image and looking for images and things it's something we absolutely think about in the field one of the challenges facing uh, the wolves are the domestic dogs but also the cattle uh, soil compaction wood harvesting for fuel. So we, we had different images that we knew that we wanted to get. So we're always thinking about what do we actually need to tell the whole story. We didn't get any carcasses uh, because there wasn't a rabies outbreak while we were there, but there are images that we can pull from the conservation group has taken. So we can use that as a reference uh, when we talk about the entire story. But we definitely had to capture as much as we could. Right. So we went into a, one village and Will got a fantastic shot of a dog and, and a family with the children and the mother. And we'll be using that image in the show. The dogs you're talking about, these are not what we think of as pet dogs. The dogs in Ethiopia are there for one purpose. Uh, the people don't necessarily like them, uh, but they need them to warn against leopards and uh, hyenas. So if there is an attack on the goats, they need that alarm system. So they don't vaccinate. They don't pet their dogs. Uh, they're there to work yeah. for that one purpose. And so they have to feed themselves. They go out and they hunt the same rodents that the wolves are hunting. And they basically take care of themselves. Ethiopians believe that vaccinating an animal will make it lazy. <laughs> that spaying or neutering an animal will make it lazy and will make it not want to work. So a big part of it is education. The Ethiopian Wolf Conservation Program has an education officer in the Bali Mountains. They have one for the North Region and the Simeon Mountains. And they go out and they actually tell people that no, that that's not true. Um, and so when they come through with a vaccination program, people are much more willing to let them vaccinate against rabies. Do the local people see the wolves or are, are your pictures like the first time that they get to see them up close? Or? Um, it depends. Like in the cities, they, they definitely haven't seen them. In the, the countryside, the, the herders, the wolves follow the the goats kind of use them as cover when they're hunting rodents sometimes so they, they see them all the time but it is a creature that they're extremely proud of it's only found in their country it's something that they own an endemic species that's beautiful and it's theirs so they have this this huge sense of pride and and want to protect it yeah so what projects you're working on at the moment i know this uh the Midway project is it at the moment? Um, Midway, yes. Midway is kind of in trouble right now. They have lost about a million dollars in funding, so they've had to cut off their volunteer program, and they're thinking about cutting off their, their visitor services program. So it's possible that people will no longer be able to go out there. So I, I count myself very lucky that I've been able to go out three times in the past few years uh, to 
capture images of the area and the, the marine debris and the plastics. That's kind of an ongoing passion of mine. Um, I contributed images to the uh, Marine Debris Conference last year in Hawaii and will always be on the lookout for, for any trash. And the last question we always ask our guests is, if they could recommend one photographer to our listeners, someone that they may be of longer admired or even recently found, who would that be and why? I've been extremely lucky to work with some very talented people. Uh, two people that come to mind are, are Paul Souders uh, and uh, Wilbur Ard Lucas. And they're both just pushing every limit they can uh, to get something different and innovative and and something that, that really speaks to audiences that they haven't seen before. Where can people find out more about you and see your work? They can go to RebeccaJackrell.com or the EthiopianWolfProject.com. When your book is on sale, they'll be there as well. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and when your exhibit is displayed. All the information will be up there. There's a blog attached to my website where I post everything. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter, so lots of ways to find out what's going on. Good. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is... The Candid Frame.